are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. Hello there, welcome to this week's podcast. This week, I'm talking to Dr. Jennifer Gaudiani again, and I'm excited about this one, edema. That's what we're talking about. You know, that <laughs> it's one of those recovery bogeys. Many people dread it. Many people experience it. Lots and lots of people do not understand it. So we're going to get into the nitty gritty on edema. Here's Dr. Gaudiani. So let's start with the kind of edema that happens when patients stop purging. This kind of edema is really tough. I mean, is there a kind of edema that's not tough for somebody who's got an eating disorder? Because we know that, first of all, edema means retention of salt and water in the body tissues. And uh, edema can show up physically as kind of swollen toes, swollen feet, swollen ankles in a way that's a little triggering, maybe uncomfortable to walk on. As it gets worse, it can worsen to the point where it's called pitting edema, where if somebody pushes their thumb gently into the side of their leg for 10 seconds and then releases it, it leaves a pit where the fluid's been pushed out transiently. That's pitting edema. Edema can progress to the point where it fills the space in the abdomen around the organs. And that kind of fluid is called ascites, A-S-C-I-T-E-S. It can progress to the point where fluid fills the lungs, and that can be called pulmonary edema. It can get to the point where it fills people's brains, and they can get a terrible headache and feel really fuzzy or actually get in danger of medical problems from it. So there's a lot of different types of edema. And before I go into what type is what, let's just sort of focus a little bit on the physical exam side of things. Um, For instance, uh, patients who wear rings might find that the rings don't fit when they've got edema. And again, those who are acutely body aware may really misinterpret what's going on with their bodies when things suddenly look different and feel different and clothing fits differently. Edema typically comes and goes. So edema does not mean suddenly my body got bigger and stayed bigger. That's, That's not usually edema. That's usually body weight. Edema will typically worsen in the feet by the end of the day because we're a column of water against gravity. And by the end of the day of being on our feet, water is sort of drained down and has gotten into our legs and ankles. Usually by morning, once you've been lying flat, that's had a chance to get back into the vasculature to a certain extent and get urinated away. And so the key exam feature for edema is that it comes and goes. Every person gets edema in different places. Uh, Some really get it in their faces. Um, And we have to remember the facial tissues are very delicate. 
So if there's any propensity to have extra, you know, um, sort of salt and water, it's really easy to have it go into the face. Um, so everybody's experience is different. And we just say, that's just genetic. Whatever your body does with edema is what your body does. So let's consider rebound edema for people who stop purging. We're going to go back to my favorite concept, the cave person brain. And we know the cave person brain is that part of our brain that runs us as a mammal Unaware of our reasons for doing things, it just knows what's happening to its animal. When somebody purges, and everybody's different about how their body will respond to that, and of course, as ever, this applies to people of all shapes and sizes, the cave person brain typically interprets, I must be dying of dehydration in the desert. I am dehydrated all the time. So it says to itself, if we're so lucky as to come upon an oasis where there's availability of salt and water, we'd better make sure we don't pee away those life-saving resources. We need them. In fact, looks like we might need to even store a little extra fluid for when we go back out into the desert. And so in the genius of our bodies, the adrenal glands, which sit like little caps on top of the kidneys, overproduce a hormone called aldosterone. And aldosterone does a couple of things in this setting. One, it makes you retain every drop of salt and water that you take in. That can be by mouth or it can be by intravenous fluid if you go to the emergency room. Two, by accident, this is not one of these things that sort of has a purpose, it dumps potassium in the urine. And what do patients who purge need less than to lose the precious potassium they've got in their urine? This explains why people who purge and are still purging and are still dehydrated, even if they're taking potassium tablets, their potassium may not come up because they're, they're high aldosterone levels are just making it be wasted in the urine. What happens clinically to patients who purge and then stop purging, whether it's by vomiting, by diuretics, or by laxatives typically, is that if they get brave enough to decrease their purging or stop it, and if they're unfortunate enough that their eating disorder makes them weigh themselves often, and as a side note, no one ever needs to weigh themselves ever again, including in the doctor's office, then they will literally potentially notice that their weight increases five to 15 pounds within a few days of stopping purging. And they think to themselves, the eating disorder voice goes, I told you, this is a disaster. Uh, look what you've done to yourself. We knew it was not safe to stop purging. And typically they don't have a, a loving practitioner around them, although sometimes they do, to say, wait a second, wait a second, stop. This can only be fluid weight. This cannot be body weight. Take a second. And for those who purge, fluid weight can be just as scary as body weight. So that's not even necessarily that reassuring anyway. The good news is there's a wonderful way to fix this, or at least to really reduce the symptoms, the distress, and even the medical dangers. There's three main steps. 
One, a person's really got to stop purging. Easier said than done. Because every time they purge, they're going to continue giving their cave person brain the message, overproduce aldosterone, overproduce aldosterone, we're still in the desert. Two, they've got to be a little gentle with their fluid intake for a while. And by gentle, I mean this. Let's imagine that you have a bathtub whose plug, for some reason, isn't working that well. So the water's having trouble draining, much in the same way that the high aldosterone levels prevent normal fluid intake from draining normally out through the kidneys and the urine. What you don't do in that plumbing situation is turn both taps on full speed because then you're going to have the bath water flowing everywhere. There's a mistaken impression that one needs to, what do people call it? Detox their system or flush their system with lots and lots of water all the time. Hydration is great, but particularly if you've got a plumbing problem, hormonally speaking, you don't want to be drinking tons and tons of water because it's just going to put your body under strain and you're likelier to get more edema. So I typically tell my patients, drink two to three liters a day. That's 60 to 90 ounces a day. Usually that will satisfy thirst. Um, and it doesn't overload the body with fluids. That's the second step. And the third step is that a doctor has to prescribe a medicine to block the aldosterone. The medicine is easy. It's called spironolactone, S-P-I-R-O-N-O-L-A-C-T-O-N-E, spironolactone. Spironolactone is an old diuretic, and some of my patients go, oh, Dr. G, a diuretic, what are you thinking? But spironolactone is not one of those kinds of diuretics. It's not that strong. What it does is it directly blocks aldosterone. That's its mechanism of action. And so when a patient of mine who's been purging by vomiting or diuretics is ready to stop purging, I'll typically put them on about 25 milligrams, which is the lowest dose of spironolactone daily for about three weeks. And if they've stopped purging and are nourishing themselves and hydrating appropriately, Within that three weeks, the adrenal glands finally get the message from the cave person brain, well, it looks like we're out of the desert permanently. Stand down. Stop producing so much. In the meantime, my experience is that patients go, oh, it's possible to stop purging and not get super edematous. I'm so excited. So it's really satisfying intervention for something that gives so much distress to patients. Patients who use laxatives is a bit trickier matter. Those who abuse laxatives to the point of diarrhea typically actually are more dehydrated than those who purge, in my clinical experience, by vomiting. <coughs> and that means a couple of things. One, the weight that they unfortunately stepped on the scale that morning and got while they're still using laxatives is quite a lot lower than their actual true body weight because of how profoundly dehydrated they are. The reason I think the dehydration is worse is because the colon really has a huge surface area to pull body water out and be lost in diarrhea. So, you know, how much water can you really lose throwing up? 
eh. but you can use a, lose a lot of water uh, through diarrhea. Secondly, just because of some really nerdy acid-base calibrations in those who purge by laxative abuse, spironolactone doesn't work as well. And my experience is that patients who stop laxative use just by the very process of stopping being their raisin form, you know, their dried fruit form, basically with no hydration at all, their body weight should rise appropriately by a certain amount. Everyone's different. That's not something I would seek to prevent, just as it's not something I would seek to prevent with those who purge by any other means, because rehydration is appropriate and necessary, maybe distressing. That's why people have wonderful coaches or therapists, but it's appropriate. What I want to do with the spironolactone in the case of those who purge by vomiting or diuretics is avoid edema formation. With those who purge by laxatives, my experience is virtually everyone will get some edema, even if they do everything right and I do everything right. And it, in that case, we just say, like, hold my hand, honey. I'll stay with you through the end. I'll be a bear witness. I'll be with you. I can hold your distress. It's going to eventually go away. Um, but I often use a higher dose of spironolactone for those patients, perhaps 100 milligrams a day, and for a longer period of time, maybe tapering it off. That tends to be what works in my experience. There's not a lot of literature out there on that. Um, but even so there's going to be some stuff and it's going to be hard. And so having a great team is helpful. So that's the basic refeeding edema story. Typically the patients who don't use laxatives, who on their blood panel have what's called a CO2, sometimes it's called a bicarbonate um, of over 30 or 24 is normal. Those are the ones who can expect to get swelling when they stop purging because that's a marker of a degree of dehydration. And it's those patients who really will benefit from spironolactone in particular. Do any questions pop into your mind from just a segment of it? No, I mean, you're so fantastic at explaining it, really. Um, I know that... Um, I think that the, the edema after purging is more commonly spoken about, but so I guess the, the big question, which I'm pretty sure you're going to go on to anyway, is, well, what about somebody in the absence of purging who experiences edema? What a fantastic setup. Yes. The other kind of edema is what I'm going to broadly call refeeding edema. Now, the medical literature is encouraging practitioners to move towards the phrase nutritional rehabilitation because refeeding is considered understandably a little paternalistic or parentalistic. Um, but I'm going to call it refeeding edema because that's an easier thing to say and it's sort of familiar to people. When someone has been restricting calories of any body shape or size and they begin to take in nourishment again, in some people, the response of the body to getting more nourishment is for the insulin to say, yippee, we've got some nutrition. Let's push it right into these starving cells. And so as people digest their food, 
some overproduce insulin compared to what they might truly need, which is probably genetic. And it pushes the, 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 the uh, glucose and the nutrition right into the cells, just like it's supposed to. Insulin has a tricky little side effect, though. And insulin's tricky little side effect is that it causes the kidneys to retain salt and water. Now, only about half of patients with critical malnutrition and low body weight, as per my previous hospital program, actually develop refeeding edema. Not everybody does. And we can't tell for sure who's going to develop edema and who won't. One feature that we know does predict edema is a low albumin level in the blood. Albumin is one of our blood proteins that sort of acts like a vacuum to vacuum out of the tissues any extra fluids that don't belong there and bring it back into the bloodstream for the kidneys to produce and to eliminate as urine. If someone has a low albumin level, it's easier for the water part of the blood to ooze out of the vessels into the tissues as edema. And so things that cause low albumin levels can include, when it comes to eating disorders, having another medical condition that's inflammatory, could be cancer, rheumatologic disease, or autoimmune disease. Infections do it. Um, some of our older patients seem perhaps to have lower albumin levels. But that's a predisposing factor. So anytime one of my patients is going to begin nutritional rehabilitation and happens to have a lower albumin, I try to set expectations. You know, I'm pretty sure you're going to get edema in this process. It's going to suck. And I'm going to give you as many tricks of the trade to get through it as possible. But there's no way to prevent this kind of edema. Spironolactone does not work for refeeding edema. There are other patients who may just have a predisposition to produce lots of insulin anyway. And when they nourish themselves, their body produces lots of insulin, and then they get that effect of lots and lots of edema. So there's a few things to say about it. Best management in people of all shapes and sizes is to encourage them to keep their feet up while they're seated and to stay seated with their feet up a bit more often than usual because just sort of keeping that edema out of the delicate tissues of the ankles, feet, and toes where it's really quite painful can help. Edema is a little less painful if it's sitting in your upper legs because there's just a little more room there. In some individuals for whom they fit and are comfortable, compression stockings can help. And those are the um, very fashionable leggings that uh, people usually wear up to the knee, rarely up to the hip, that you put on in the morning and you take off at night. And as you walk around in them, they just give a little extra support to your legs so that the fluid literally doesn't have space to fall out of the vasculature and into the tissues. The only people in whom I would consider using a more hefty diuretic like furosemide, which is a loop diuretic, would be those in whom the edema is so severe that they're about to break down their skin. Because if you fill a water balloon really fast, 
without giving a chance to expand, it can pop. And that can happen with skin as well. So I try to use Lasix or Ferrosamide. I own no stock in any company I'm talking about. <laughs> um, just for a few days, just to ease back the edema a little bit. But unfortunately, this one just has to be gotten through. And, and it's support, it's expectations. And sometimes, and I want to be very careful here, their dietitian can back off their carb fraction, their carbohydrate fraction of their diet. And by diet, I mean meal plan. <laughs> and by meal plan, I just mean the food that they're consuming. Um, just a little bit, maybe back to 40%, um, where maybe... 50% would be typical. The reason for that is not because there's anything wrong with carbs. Carbs are fabulous. I eat carbs. I love them. Everyone needs carbs. Our brains need carbs. Our muscles need carbs. Yay, carbs. But since it is an insulin effect, you can decrease the insulin response a little bit by just backing off a little bit on that carb fraction um, just until the edema is better. This is a really important point. There are certain online circles that encourage patients to eat a, a truly painfully high number of calories in perpetuity, and they claim that edema is healing. This is unscientific, misleading, and harmful. Edema is not healing. Edema is a side effect of insulin production during nutritional rehabilitation. When nutritional rehabilitation is being done properly, with the very rare exception of somebody who has an extremely low albumin level, refeeding edema should go away within three weeks. But for patients who have perhaps been harmed by various online resources that claim otherwise. I want to empower them compassionately to know that the notion of edema as healing is a myth. Why do you think that that notion has come about? Where would that have come from? Where, where, where would somebody have thought that, do you think? I'm no mental health professional, but if I were a guessing girl, I would think that a recovery system that universally prescribes extremely high calories to people in perpetuity and which causes people to increase their insulin production very high over a very sustained period of time, causing sustained edema would probably have a secondary gain to claiming that that's healing because it's such a common side effect of that practice. There's no eating disorder dietitian in the country who would prescribe such a meal plan unmonitored, unobserved. And it's just important to emphasize that point. Yeah. I think it's also important to emphasize the point that um, nobody other than a registered dietitian who you are seeing should be prescribing a meal plan. Yeah, I think that's so well said. What I recommend for individuals who might have in the past or might be 
in the process of following such advice and finding that they have severe edema in a really prolonged fashion is to, if possible, if the resources are there, and I speak from a point of privilege on this, try to find eating disorder professionals specifically who really know what they're talking about, who might be able to do telemedicine if it's a geographic problem, who might be able to offer services for reduced cost if that's available. But broadly speaking, once again, a health at every size philosophy comes to our rescue because ultimately when somebody is nourishing themselves without restriction and adequately for their energy needs and when they're moving for joy within their ability and their interest level, when they're attending to their mental health, and we put that into a context of the really complicated social justice structures that surround all of these ideas, their body will do what their body needs to do. Huge thank you to Dr. Gaudiani for taking the time to talk to me. I think we covered a lot in that, or she covered a lot. I just listened and I have listened over and over again because that's such fantastic information and I think many of you are going to find that really helpful as well and I hope it settles some worries for you if you are going through anything that we talked about um, in the podcast today. And remember, if you're in doubt, the best thing to do is to find an eating disorder professional medical advisor. Registered dietitians can be really, really helpful as well in this type of field. Anything that's sort of nutrition related and stuff going on with your body that is as a result of recovery nutrition. So always, rather than consulting online staff and asking random people on the internet what you should do, find a medical doctor to go and talk to. Your body is different from my body, is different from the next person's body, is different from whomever your registered dietitian's last patient was body. All these bodies are different. And yes, there are trends that we follow. And eating without restriction is something that I think for all bodies is important. But these are all general concepts. And then there are specifics as to how your body processes things, what your body needs to do, what your body goes through. And you can't, you can't learn that from some general online anything. It's specific to you. It really is. Thank you for listening. I will link in the show notes to any information that you'd like from Dr. Gaudiani. So just link to her website. And there's cool videos on there, actually. She does these one minute medical minute something. One minute medical minute. And um, it's she just picks a topic and talks about it really short and sharp for a minute. And a minute is long enough for even my attention span to not run out. So I'll link to all of those sorts of things in the show notes to this podcast. Thank you for listening. Cheers, and until next time, cheerio.